Bob Murphy Show, episode 115. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show so this episode I'm recording right now is going to be the last one I'll do before the new baby comes. And so I'm not sure exactly when the next episode's going to come, but the stuff I have to say in this particular episode, I really wanted to get out there sooner rather than later. And so that's why I'm pushing this one through. So the title of this is a play on words or related to a presentation that I made with Carlos Lara entitled How to Weather the Coming Financial Storms. And we recorded that back in September 2016, where we had warned people about the dangers of what the Federal Reserve had done in particular with all the rounds of quantitative easing or QE. And Carlos and I argued that they had blown up a huge bubble in the stock market. And we recommended basically a three-pronged solution for people. Not that it was a wonderful investment strategy so you can make millions, but just to prevent yourself from getting crushed based on what we thought was coming down the pipe. And so in particular, we recommended that you get a bunch of currency, like actual cash on hand in case there was a problem with the banks. We recommended that you acquire gold and or silver, preferably in your physical possession, like in a safe in your house, in case something happens to the dollar. And then for your dollar-denominated needs, we recommended um, taking out a properly structured dividend-paying whole life policy in order to implement what Nelson Nash invented or discovered, namely the infinite banking concept or IBC. Okay, so that's something we did back in September 2016. And again, we titled that How to Weather the Coming Financial Storms. I'll put a link, of course, to that presentation. So you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 115. Also, if you want to just see our latest book on all that stuff, a very quick read, it's called The Case for IBC. And again, IBC stands for Infinite Banking Concept. That's the way you can use a properly structured whole life insurance policy to manage cash flows in a way that sort of keeps it away from Wall Street in the conventional banking sector, if you're concerned about those areas. Uh, for that, just go to thecaseforibc.com if you want to check that book out. So what Carlos and I were doing there is, you know, we, we were telling the audience, hey, we realize there's people out there whose job it is to scare the crap out of you. You know, they're just, you know, they point to what the Fed's doing or whatever. They're perma bears. They're always, you know, trying to sell newsletters and, how you can profit from the coming Armageddon, See, you know, that kind of stuff. And we we realized there was a whole genre of that. And we were trying to say, we're not trying to do that, folks. But on the other hand, look at these facts we're going to lay out for you here. We, you know, we don't know the exact timing, but this is pretty serious stuff. And so here's some steps you can take just to, again, you know, play defense, just to make sure you don't get wiped out 
based on a few of these possible threats we see coming. And so that's the the attitude that I have for you today. And I want to be clear what I'm going to talk about here in this episode of the Bob Murphy show has nothing to do with Carlos. This, you know, these are my views, not his, but it's the same sort of thing where I recognize folks, those of you, especially who have been spending years rolling your eyes. It's just the lying mainstream media, the corporate press in particular, since Trump got elected and how they seize upon every last little thing to try to castigate him and they're doing everything they can to bring down his presidency. And so now with this latest coronavirus panic, I see why you would just fold that right into the same narrative and think, oh, yet again, here's another thing. Oh, the end of the world. Oh, there's global warming. There's a swine flu. There's the killer bees. And now it's coronavirus. Oh. I understand that, folks. But I think that reaction is misguided in this case. Okay. So I want to just in this episode lay out why I think some of those analogies are wrong, and then give some practical advice. Also, I'm going to, as an economist, just try to give a little more insight into what's going on with the shortages, like a, with toilet paper and such. All right. So it's going to be a combination of trying to explain things so you have an idea of what's going on, but then also some practical news you can use that will uh, help you in your own life. So in particular, who this episode is aimed at is people who are at risk from COVID-19, in other words, you know, people with lung issues or um, circulatory problems, or people who live in the household or frequently visit such people. Because again, that's, that's the key here. Just because you personally don't think this would be a big deal for you, and you know, for a lot of you hearing this, that that's the case, but just keep in mind, you could catch this thing and then be carrying it and not even have any symptoms, and then you go and visit your grandma and give it to her. Okay. So that's, that's kind of just, I want you to be aware of these things. And unfortunately it's not just the critics of Trump who have, who might have led you to believe this is all a bunch of nonsense, but also the messaging from the CDC from the get-go was absolutely horrendous on this. That for people who really wanted to make sure they took steps to protect themselves, if you listen to the CDC messaging you would be doing very risky things and not even realize it. All right, so I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, let me just say it this way. What the mainstream media has been doing is crying wolf, right? You know, the classic story of the boy who cried wolf. And so what's the, what's the lesson of that story? You know, why is it that the boy who cried wolf was being foolish? The lesson isn't because there's no such thing as wolves. The lesson is because if you discredit yourself by repeatedly claiming wolf when there isn't one, then when there really is a wolf, no one will believe you, right? So likewise here, yes, by all means, you can still, if you hate the media and their ridiculous anti-Trump vendetta, fine, but don't conclude that therefore in this one case, that means there's nothing to worry about and this thing's going to blow over and it's just like the flu or something, all right? That, that's not the right take, right? Again, you can still blame the media. You can say, geez, I wish, you know, too bad the media has discredited themselves and now no one's taking it seriously. Thanks a lot, guys, because now this is serious. You know, this blood is on your hands too. You can have that spin, but I just would strongly encourage you, if you've been blowing this thing off like it's nothing, I would urge you to reconsider that. Just hold your fire, right? I'm not saying you got to do a mea culpa. Just wait and see how this thing plays out. Last thing I'll say before I get into the meat of this, folks. Um, what, I, what I would like to, you know, just urge you to consider is, I really don't think you want to back yourself into a rhetorical corner where you end up having to say two months from now, 
oh, I thought 240,000 people were supposed to die. It looks like it's going to come in at only like 180. Mm, guess the computer. As if 180,000 people dying in a few months is no big whoop, right? Like that's just, just for your own soul. Like you, you don't need to go down that path. One last caveat, let me mention, since I'm making these distinctions. Uh, I realize some people might be hearing this because relatives or whatever passed it along to people uh, just, you know, they're concerned about their health and they want to share the tips I'm going to give in a minute. Uh, my own views, I'm philosophically against government coercive measures, just period, right? So it doesn't matter whether this thing is an overblown panic and it's not really a health crisis or whether it really is in the same ballpark of seriousness as many of the people are saying, that doesn't justify from a moral or philosophical viewpoint, governments taking coercive measures to keep people in their homes or to prevent people from going to work. All right, so those are two distinct things. And I would just, again, urge you, if, if really what your concern is, is over the coercive measures, you don't need to lead with, this is all being blown out of proportion. Only some people you know, who are 75 and have lung issues are at risk here. And that's why we don't need to do all this. You don't need to do that because number one, those are two distinct things conceptually. But number two, you're actually discrediting your plea against the coercion if you're leading with this is nothing. Because then the people who really are concerned and who have been doing research and say, no, this really does seem like it's a big deal. They're not going to believe. They're going to tune you out because it sounds like you don't know what you're talking about. right? So you're actually hurting your own case if really what your concern is, is to protect civil liberties you're hurting your case if you're linking that to, because really, you know, I dispute the, the underlying claims about the, the health crisis. All right. So there's, there's my caveats. Let me uh, now turn to, so as I'm recording this, there's going to be a lag here in terms of processing and getting it out. I'm recording this on April 1st. And so last night was when Trump came out and basically was, you know, telling America, this is going to be bad. He was saying, this is going to be one of the worst two to three weeks in U.S. history, you know, words of that effect, gearing people up to accept that there's going to be 100 to 240,000 U.S. deaths from this thing. So let me just say this for those of you who still think, oh, come on, these are just, you know, computer projections. And by the way, for those who don't know me, I've done a lot of work on climate change economics. So believe me, folks, I've spent years going through and pinpointing all of the flaws in catastrophic computer projections and showing, well, wait a minute, the way they're getting this crazy number is look at over here, they're assuming blah, 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 but is that really good? So I get that. But what I'm saying to you right now is you can certainly say that Jake Tapper or Nancy Pelosi or AOC has a vested interest in pushing a narrative of alarm and crisis where it looks like the Trump administration was asleep at the wheel and now... Lots of people are going to die. But the last person on earth who would be pushing that narrative is Donald Trump. Okay, so just think that through. This really, it doesn't make sense to say this is just nothing if Donald Trump is out there with those numbers, right? What makes more sense is that people showed him various lines of evidence and argumentation to convince him that, yeah, this is going to be bad. And Mr. President, politically, it's going to be better for you if you were up front with this stuff rather than after the fact trying to explain what happened and why your rosy scenarios didn't pan out. It's better for you to, you know, say some numbers up front and then hopefully the actual numbers come in less than that. 
So it looks like, you know, your efforts of your, the efforts of your administration, you know, helped mitigate the, the disaster. Okay. So again, just, you know, think through why, why is Trump saying that if this is all just a plot by CNN to take down Trump, then why is he going along with it? Okay. Because he certainly wasn't in the beginning, right? So something made him change and come out with, you know, what to many of you might've seemed like, whoa, that escalated quickly, kind of changing his, his tune. And so I think, you know, one of the big differences between what's going on right now versus computer models showing that by the year 2100, the UK is going to be underwater because of unrestricted climate change is that this stuff is already baked into the cake, right? That there's a lag. And obviously I'm not a medical doctor here, but I, I think the spirit of the things I'm going to be saying, saying here in terms of the, the medicine or the, the medical nature of this is correct. There's the people who are going to be dying over the next three weeks already have this. Okay. So it's, it's not that the experts are showing Trump projections of who we think is going to contract this thing two weeks from now. And then three days later, they're all going to start dropping, dropping like flies. And that's where these numbers are coming from. No, I think really it's, it's more like they're showing Trump here's, you know, the confirmed cases we have, look how quickly this thing has grown. Look at how of a patchwork of these measures of, you know, social distancing and stay at home orders and all this stuff is when these things were phased in we can still see that even though on paper, a lot of these places have these orders in effect, few, few people are, are obeying them or not many and just, you know, showing him and coming with reasonable estimates to see right now, how many people are walking around who are currently infected and yet haven't shown up yet in the official statistics for a combination of reasons. So one thing is people might not have symptoms yet. And so that's why they're not you know, being tested. And another issue is even people with symptoms are not being tested because there's still a shortage of tests. So let me just give you two quick anecdotes on that. Um, my wife is a very high at risk person. She has a history of lung problems. And so, you know, she's been researching this like crazy. She's pregnant. You know, she's, she's due, well, I alluded to in the beginning any day now. And so, um, of course, this was of great concern to her. And then she happened to have caught a really bad cold like three weeks ago. And her symptoms had been progressing. And it was like of the seven things they list, she had five of them in succession. So she was really concerned that, whole, do I have this? Because I need to know, like, do we, you know, do we need to hurry up and have me get induced to get the baby? You know, that all that kind of stuff, as you could imagine, she'd be worried about. And she was in this catch-22 where... The, you know, her OBGYN's office and her regular doctor, they wouldn't let her come into the office because she had symptoms of COVID-19. And so they're like, whoa, 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 you can't come in here because you might give somebody COVID-19. So you'd say, oh, okay, well then how does she prove she doesn't have it? So her doctor will see her. Oh, well, go get a test, right? Well, no, because the hospital said you don't have enough symptoms. She didn't, she didn't have a high fever. And so that's why she couldn't get the test. Okay, so they have a very limited number of tests. There's plenty of people who want to get tested and I'm saying it's not just hypochondriacs who have a runny nose. Oh my God, do I have it? Because CNN says everyone's going to die. That's not, I mean, yeah, sure. I'm sure there are people like that, but it's not merely people like that is my point. All right. And so it turns out she, she eventually did get a test, but she had to fight for it for like 10 days. And then she, thank God she turned out negative. Okay. But that, that I'm saying there are people like that. Another example, a relative of my wife almost certainly has the thing. In fact, her doctor is so convinced she has it with the symptoms and so on. They prescribed her with, you know, the drug combo that people are touting is, hey, this might be a way to really get this thing under control. The um, 
hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and an inhaler, right? So that's what my wife's relative has been prescribed. It is at home taking, dealing with symptoms, and she, she checks off all the list of symptoms. Like she had worse ones that my wife did. And yet she doesn't show up in Massachusetts official case estimate or, you know, confirmed cases because they didn't give her a test either. And from their point of view, why would they? Because she's already, you know, wh whether she officially tests yes or no, she's already at home doing the prescribed treatment, quarantining herself and so on. And, she, you know, they, they think she's going to be okay. Just stay home and, and treat yourself at home. So why would they, quote, waste a test on her? E whatever the test shows, she's going to be doing the same thing. All right. So again, that's just, you know, I realize this is anecdotal, but my point is, is if you're looking at like the official numbers in your state and thinking, what the hell, why is everyone freaking out? There's only 200 people in my, there's way more than 200 people in your state who have it. They might have even been telling their doctor, I think I have it. Can I get a test? And they were told no, because there's not enough tests to go around. We got to save us for the people that were really sure have it. All right. So that's part of what's going on here in case you're you know trying to understand how could it be that even though the numbers on paper right now aren't catastrophic, why is everyone freaking out so much? And what did they show Trump to get him to all of a sudden, you know, say these crazy numbers at a press conference when thus far on paper, this thing so, you know, right now has, quote, only killed several hundred more people than 9-11, than 9-11 attacks did, right? Okay, so that, that's part of what's going on. Let me give you some more on this. It's understandable that people are like, whoa, 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 okay, well, how come, you know, this is so qualitatively different from some of these other things, right? Like, I remember Ebola was a thing. We didn't shut down the economy for that. And again, I want to be clear, folks, I am not in favor of shutting down the economy if that means government coercion, okay? I think in a free society, there would be, you know, social campaigns and businesses could take steps and blah, blah, blah. But that's, so don't misunderstand me. I'm just responding, though, to the rhetoric of people who are saying, this clearly can't be that big a deal. And this is all just political because there were other, you know, outbreaks of nasty things. And when it wasn't Trump in charge, we weren't doing this stuff. And so therefore, you know, I smell a rat. This is all political. I'm just trying to show you what the differences were, or at least some of the differences. So with Ebola, um, I think there's at least two relevant differences. One is that that, I think that killed you more quickly. And so you didn't have time to spread it around, but also, it was, my understanding is transmitted through fluids, right? So if you were just in the room treating someone with Ebola, just that person breathing out, you weren't going to get it, all right? And so hospital workers in particular treating Ebola patients, as long as they took certain steps, you know, they, they weren't going to get it themselves and the hospital workers get knocked out of commission, all right? Whereas with COVID-19, given the way it's transmitted, and I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, coupled with the just outrageous lack of preparation on the part of the healthcare system and not having adequate masks and gloves and so on, that's, um, you know, that, that, that's an important difference, right? That a lot of the hospital workers now who are treating this initial, initial surge in patients are themselves going to catch it. And now it's just, you know, a reinforcing problem where now the frontline troops are getting taken out of commission. Okay. So, so that's one important difference here. Uh, another one, and this information comes from, I had a, somebody who works in the medical profession, works in for a hospital system, who's a fan of the show. And he was corresponding with me about something else. And I asked him, you know, there are any, can, can you address this issue of, well, isn't this like the flu, right? And there was a bad, 
I think it was in January of 2018, there was a Time Magazine story about how the hospitals were setting up tents outside because there's you know such a huge number of flu cases that year. And so he was relaying some of the relevant differences. And so two things in particular. So with the flu, the hospitalization rate, right? So in other words, of the people who catch the flu, what percentage of them, because it's so bad, have to go to the hospital? It's between 0.7% and 1.8%. Whereas with COVID-19, it's more like 5% to 15%. Okay. And by the way, he was stressing that, you know, these numbers were just what his superiors were telling him when they were having meetings on this stuff, that this isn't, you know, I, I can't point you to a journal article saying that stuff. And it's, it's not based on U.S. statistics because, you know, it's, it's too new in the U.S. But all right, but those are, if you had to pick numbers that have some basis in fact, those are the ones you'd go with. So you can see right there, that's a huge difference between the flu and COVID-19. But then another one that's just huge, and this is something that didn't strike me at first. And I just want to stress, I'm not pointing fingers at people initially too. I was like, wait, well, you just these exponential growth models. Okay, well, yeah, then by the end of next year, everyone on planet earth is going to be dead. Okay. You know, and so obviously these exponential growth models, at some point it stops growing exponentially. And that's what the argument was over. But the thing that I didn't fully get until recently, and that I think is, is causing difficulties in people discussing this is the following fact. So again, this is differences between the flu and COVID-19. With the flu, if you get it, you typically have symptoms within two to four days, right? So you know you're sick, other people know you're sick, and you've, you, know, you feel like garbage, and so you're staying home anyway because you're in bed with the flu. So you're not out spreading it around. Whereas with COVID-19, it could be anywhere from two to 14 days that you actually have it and you're contagious, and yet you don't have any symptoms. So you're walking around, interacting with people, spreading it, not because you're a jerk, because you don't even know you're sick, or maybe you think you have a, you know, a little cold or something because you got the sniffles. Okay, so again, that's a, just a huge difference in how these things are, and you can see why that has a much bigger impact. And so you put those two things together, that's why so many health officials are freaking out about this, whereas you, know, you didn't see such comparable alarmism over the flu, all right? Because with this thing, if it can get out of hand very quickly. And if it does, like it's, you know, the, the fact that such a high percentage need hospitalization and that the mortality rate is so dependent on whether there's adequate hospital treatment available, right? Whether you, know, you can get on a ventilator, that that's why this is such a big deal. Right? So it's, in other words, it's not just that you get this thing and then they roll the dice and there's a one out of 100 chance that you die, end of story. No, it's if you get this thing and you're a serious case, maybe with a ventilator, you can pull through it. But if they're, if the hospitals, if all the ventilators are taken, then you're surely dead. Okay, so again, the mortality rate is not just something inherent to the biology of it. It depends on what the hospital infrastructure is available to treat you. And that's, you know, that's the whole logic behind the flattening the curve stuff. Okay, so again, not telling you that those facts are the end of the story, but when you're saying, well, come on, this is like the flu, there are important differences between this and the flu that affect why the response to this might be different from what it is to the flu. Okay, let me switch gears now and, oh, sorry, hang on, one last thing before I continue. Last one on just to try to get you to see 
this isn't merely, you know, something that CNN is, is cooking up to scare people. So I'm just going to read from a blog post here and I'll link it at the show notes page. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 115. So this is, how's this? It's my friend, his coworker's brother. How's that? I know a guy who knows a guy. And so but I say that though, just to say that, you know, this, this is a real person that I know indirectly and I have no reason to doubt the veracity of this particular account. You can say, you know, the guy's just looking at what's around him and this doesn't extrapolate elsewhere. Okay, fine. But I just want to make sure people realize this is not merely something that happens in a computer simulation and that we have to wait and see if it pans out that this is a big deal or not. All right. So this is from a New York City um, doctor or I think he's a, he's a nurse, actually. And so here I'm just going to read some excerpts from his blog. So he wrote this. He posted it March 26th. Okay, so I'm in the interest of brevity here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just jump in here. I am here living in New York City, which is currently the United States epicenter of COVID-19 and potentially the epicenter of the world at this moment. I am young, healthy, and ready to help in any way possible. But for me to provide care for my patients, I need to be in an environment where I can provide the most bang for my buck. Okay, Uh, let's see. I have been off of work the past two days unwinding as best I can, but the truth is that I'm emotionally in a position I have never been in my nursing career or quite honestly, my entire life. If you know me personally, you will probably agree that I'm an upbeat and positive person. I know that my biggest strength in nursing is to keep moving through my shift with a bright attitude, a warm smile, with a calming presence for my patients that are going through an acute crisis and an excellent communicator for my patients' families to feel as though they are not ignored like it is easy to feel in a busy emergency department. But right now, I am struggling. I am struggling with panic attacks and uncontrollable crying. I haven't taken a shower in the last week where I haven't stood there and cried until I couldn't anymore before getting out of the shower and collecting myself before continuing my day. I am unable to remove my thoughts from the topics I will discuss later in this post. Okay, dun-dun-dun-dun. To start off, I, when I say dun, 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 that's not me just humming. I'm obviously skipping ahead. To start off, I will say that multiple New York City hospitals and many more to follow have refrigerated trailers outside of the hospitals waiting to be loaded up with bodies of COVID patients who passed away because we are out of space to put bodies waiting for burials and cremation. This past night, New York City emergency departments had 19 people die from COVID complications alone. These patients never saw the inside of the inpatient hospital whether it was due to acute progression of their symptoms while in the emergency department or they were waiting for a bed to open on a COVID-positive floor for them to start receiving care at an ICU level. The next sobering reality is that an assistant nurse manager named Kaios Kelly passed away overnight due to progression of his symptoms that were unable to be managed. Kaios worked for a hospital that was unable to provide the appropriate PPE, personal protective equipment, to care for the patients with COVID-19 on his floor. Go ahead and search his name online you will find that they were so low on supplies that the staff was wearing garbage bags in order to prevent the contact spread of this virus. You read that correctly, and then he's got this in all in caps. In 2020, a hospital in Manhattan was unable to provide basic equipment to nursing staff during a global pandemic. Read that over as many times as you need and let it sink in that we are not immune to these horror stories here in the United States. A third sobering thought that we have in our brains right now is that COVID-19 patients here in the city could potentially be forced DNR, and then in parentheses, do not resuscitate. This means that if a patient who is COVID-19 positive, intubated, in an intensive care unit goes into cardiac arrest, no matter the age, will not receive CPR and potentially left to die. 
This is because of the potential exposure risk that every staff member member involved in a fully run code is put at and the potentially wasted resources that we are already trying to extend the supply of. Right now, the hospitals need as many nurses, doctors, and others just as important or and other just as important healthcare staff as possible. And by losing more team members would increase a further strain on the system and more patients to not be seen and potentially die. This DNR, again, that stands for do not resuscitate policy is not official, but as we see an exponential increase in our patient volume, a supply chain that is unable to keep up with the demand and a healthcare staff that is already short on workers, we cannot afford to spend any resources on a patient that will have a poor outcome resulting in our system putting other patients who could be saved at a higher risk of mortality. This is one of the many moral decisions that I never thought we as a healthcare system in the United States were ever going to need to make. Uh, let me just read one a little more here. To add icing to the depression cake, every hospital here in the city and possibly most in the country have a strict no visitors policy, husband and wife included. If you were in the hospital or emergency department in New York City right now, you would not be able to have your husband or wife at your bedside. To change the perspective, if your mother or father was a patient in the hospital in New York City right now, COVID positive or not, you would not be able to be there to comfort them in the time they are most vulnerable, scared and in need of family love while they take their last breath. If your mother or father is in the intensive care unit on a ventilator, multiple medication drips, and is guaranteed to pass away within the hour, they will be doing so alone with nobody at their bedside besides their already busy nurse and or already busy doctor. The nurse's day doesn't end there. The bed, equipment, and room will be cleaned, followed by the crowded emergency department sending up another alone patient in desperate need for intensive care that could possibly not help the patient survive even 24 hours later. The nurses who are taking care of these patients will be the one at their bedside as they are grasping for their last breath and moving on to an afterlife that is unknown to everyone on earth. Okay. So, all right, that's that's some of the substantive stuff. All right, so again, you know, that I'm, I'm not sharing these things to scare the crap out of people and to feed the panic, but I am seeing an alarming number of people whose response is not just to say, yes, this is horrible and holy cow, this thing is blowing up and I'm shocked at how bad this is getting and let's hope we can turn the corner on this. But nonetheless, you know, these restrictions on civil liberties are a violation of rights and, you know, hurting the economy is not going to help anybody. We need people cranking out masks and ventilators. Let's, let's lift. That would be fine, but that's not the typical reaction I'm seeing. So that's why I'm, I'm focusing on some of this stuff just to make sure people realize, again, it can be a bad thing and the government coercion and alleged response to it can also be criticized. All right. Those are two separate things. Okay. Um, let me talk a bit about the shortages. So let me say this for those of you who, you know, walked into your local store and you saw the shelves empty, can you at least now appreciate how good capitalism was beforehand? Right, we just took it for granted, didn't we? You just walk into a Walmart and the stock, the shores, the stores shelves are stocked end to end with all kinds of paper products, and you go in and, oh man, I don't want to get this kind of uh, you know, toilet paper. It doesn't feel good. I like the kind that's real soft. And what are you kidding me? I don't want to get the uh, the 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 wipes that that smell funny. Let me get the wipes that smell like lavender. And now you know you go in and it's this is what we think of as Venezuela, right? So again, just let's, let's, as we calm down from this stuff, just ponder and appreciate how much we took for granted before that the normal supply chains and distribution networks in a market economy made it so you'd walk into the store and you got products falling off the shelves and an amazing consumer choice. And so now you see when that gets interrupted, hopefully it makes you appreciate what you were taking for granted before.
So initially, let, let's, let me, what I'm going to do right now is just try to explain a little bit and shed some light on what the heck is going on. Initially, when the stores were out, I thought it was a combination of two things. So number one is they weren't doing surge pricing, right? That you know standard textbook economist model, if if the demand for something goes way up, the market clearing price goes up. And if you keep the price down, either because of fears of legal consequences, like you're going to be charged with your attorney by your attorney general with price gouging when somebody rats you out, or just in terms of goodwill, that you know, a popular grocery store or Walmart or something, if they all of a sudden are charging five dollars for a roll of toilet paper, people are gonna be mad and remember that even after this crisis passes. So for various reasons, they don't they don't jack the price up to clear the market. And so, boom, the shelves are empty. But then what was puzzling to me is, well, how come they're not getting refilled, right? And at first, I thought it was a supply chain issue that, well, gee, maybe some stuff was coming from China and now that's not coming in. And from talking with various people that I know, um, just in general, I don't think that's what's going on. That I, I know people who are involved with like overseas products coming through and, and it's it's not that there's restrictions or at least significant ones impeding the the international commerce in that respect. And so that's not what's going on. Also, you know, a lot of that stuff I think is mostly domestically made. I think the Koch brothers even uh, were involved with a lot of paper products here in the United States. So that's not the issue. And, you know, various people are saying, no, no, the toilet paper companies, paper towel, they're cranking stuff out. So I was just thinking through it more. What's just think of it this way. Before this crisis struck, every household had what it thought was the correct amount of inventory in its pantry, right? So think, let's just do it in terms of number of weeks of usage, right? So every household had an idea of how fast they go through toilet paper. Let's just focus on toilet paper. And they had a certain amount in the pantry, you know, like maybe you have a week's worth or depending on how risky you are, a day's worth, whatever. So, you know, oh yeah, and that starts getting low. I go to the store and replenish it to push back that margin, that buffer of safety. Okay. So for, obviously it's going to be different for different people, um, but you get the idea. Okay. So now, boom, the crisis hits. People realize more and more that, hey, we might be forced to stay at home either because of an explicit legal order or just I'm going to be concerned. I want to limit my outside travel. So just like when there's you know an announcement that a blizzard's coming, people, what do they do? They rush to the store and stock up because they want to hunker down and be self-sufficient in their household and have enough toilet paper to last through the storm, right? So in the original equilibrium, right, when, this, when the households all had the amount of toilet paper they felt comfortable with, in that equilibrium, week after week, what would happen? The people who make toilet paper, the manufacturers, would make enough, like for a given week, they would make enough toilet paper that America uses in a week, right? Because if they made more, that means every week the inventory would pile up in a warehouse somewhere and you can't be doing that indefinitely. And if they made less, well, that means inventories would be drawn down and eventually you'd run out of the inventory and the warehouses would be empty. So that's not going to happen. So again, other things equal, generally speaking, in an equilibrium before the crisis hit, the amount of toilet paper that was made every week would be equal to the amount of toilet paper that Americans used in a given week. Okay. So now ask yourself, suppose you tell the manufacturers, whoa, there's a huge surge in demand for your product. How much more can you make? Right? Ramp up your production. How much more can you make? And, and I don't know anything in, of the particulars about toilet paper production. I know a lot about toilet paper consumption, mind you, but not production. 
And so what is it? 50%, 100%, right? It's not infinity, right? You think about it. It'd be stupid if you're a toilet paper manufacturer and you typically week after week make a certain amount, why would you have the ability to all of a sudden make twice as much, at least not without it costing a lot more? Okay, so just think through the constraints on this. If you're not allowed to jack up the price because that's going to be construed as price gouging and exploiting America in the midst of the crisis, how dare you fatten your bottom line, right? You're not going to be able to ramp up production all that much because it's going to be too costly, right? It would be silly for you. Why would you have a plant that was able to make three times as much toilet paper for the same unit price as what you expected to make year after year in a typical week? Why would you do that? That would be, that'd be a waste of money. You go ahead and design a plant that's smaller, has lower capacity. Okay. So my point is, yes, there's going to be some variability in how much they can crank out. You know, they have their workers coming in working triple shifts and whatever. But my point being, it's it's some margin. They can't increase output without them losing their profit margin, right? Without them losing money. Because again, they're not allowed to jack up the price because that's going to be vilified. All right. So let me, just, let me just make up numbers. I didn't go research this, but let's just make up numbers. So let's say when the crisis hits, every American looks at their pantry and whatever before the crisis was that they thought the correct amount of toilet paper to be carrying was, now they want to add a month to it, right? So for different households, obviously the number of rolls of toilet paper will be different, but here I'm measuring it in terms of time, right? So a household that normally goes through three rolls in a week, now they want to add 12 rolls to the ham- to the pantry, right? They have four weeks worth of toilet paper under normal rates of consumption. A household that, you know, it's just one person who only uses a roll a week, they only need to add four rolls, okay? But America as a whole, if in the original equilibrium every week was using all of the new production of toilet paper and the, everyone's pantries stayed, you know, the same on average, well, then now let's say... And so now if everybody wants to add four weeks to their inventories and their pantries, how long is that going to take, right? And so let's just say the TP manufacturers are able to double capacity so that now in a given week, they make enough toilet paper for what people consume that week and they make that amount on top of it so that now inventories can be bolstered by how much? By one week's worth of toilet paper. Right. So even if we assume, which might be a generous assumption, I don't know. I've known nothing about toilet paper production. But even if we assume that all the TP producers collectively can, on average, double their output without having to raise their unit price, then still, in order for America to add one month's worth of toilet paper to their pantries, that would take a month to get there. You see, it's not something you can just boom, take care of by next Thursday. It takes a while to get up to that point. And, so, and then there, uh, on top of it, there's this perversity where there's a self-fulfilling prophecy where people who are panicked and they go to the store and the moment they see the stores out, well, now their estimate of how much toilet paper they needed goes way up because now they you know, realize oh, it's not just a matter of how long do I got to stay in. Now it's a matter of, I don't know when the next time I'm going to be able to get toilet paper is. Okay. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where because it was hard or impossible to meet that initial surge in demand, given that politically and you know socially or in terms of social norms, we're not going to allow for surge pricing. Given that, 
there was no way the manufacturers could have satisfied the demand immediately. There was going to be a lag, a catch-up period. And so then when people are going to the store and seeing there's no toilet paper, that makes them panic. And now they want even more toilet paper. And so it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if that keeps, you know, if it goes, whoa, one week, two weeks, three weeks, when everyone's frantically searching and realizing there's a TP shortage and this now just becomes a thing. Now, anytime you see any toilet paper, boom, you grab it, even if you already have six weeks worth in your pantry, meaning that somebody else isn't going to be able to get that. And if they're running low, now they're panicked and thinking, wow, this is crazy. Okay. So that's, I think that's some of what's going on here. Let me just mention the downfall or some of the negative or unintended consequences. It's understandable that these large retailers have these policies in place and that, you know, they have like a, a rationing system, you know, things like signs saying only, only one package per household, that kind of stuff. And you get why they're doing that. But one of the downsides is suppose there's somebody who's altruistic and, you know, is friends with a bunch of people who live in a nursing home or, you know, like a, just an apartment complex that has a lot of elderly people who are at risk of COVID-19, people who really should not be going to the store just to get toilet paper. And so this person goes around and says, hey, uh, everybody, I'm going to go run to the store. I got to get stuff. Does anyone need anything? And they're like, oh, yeah, give me some toilet paper. And so they got eight people in the apartment complex who each want a package of toilet paper. And so now that person trying to be a good, good Samaritan goes to the store and wants to get nine packages, one for herself and eight for the other you know, people who really don't want to be leaving. And they can't do that right? And they load their cart up. Either it's literally against store policy or everyone's going to start hissing at them and calling them evil. All right. So I just, just keep that stuff in mind that you, you don't know the information. You don't know all the relevant details. And so just try to reserve your judgment before vilifying someone as a monster for all you know, they're dealing with something or they're doing something actually noble. All right. And th again, this is all the more reason that actual laws punishing so-called price gouging are bad, not just philosophically, I would say, but also you can see the negative consequences of that. That, yeah, even though big brand retailers might institutionally not want to have jacked up prices just because, it, you know, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth of the community. Still, for those who are really in desperate need of toilet paper, if you had, you know, Joe's price gouging operation or something, or you know, <laughs> jerks are us or something, and their, their catch line is, yeah, we're, we're profiteering, but at least you can get your TP, whatever. You can go to that. You pay $5 for a single roll, but at least you know you can get it. All right. And, the, and that's just literally illegal right now. And so that's, it's not obvious that that's helping anybody. Folks, let's take a break from my discussion of the coronavirus and steps you can take to protect yourself from it to mention that if you like The Bob Murphy Show, you can contribute and get more episodes coming. Because of the new baby, I'm going to be spending a lot more time at home, and it would be great if I were able to use my limited free time in order to crank out more episodes for you good people. But for that to be feasible, obviously, I need your support. To see the details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks, everybody. Let me mention um, the elusive Von Pepe sent me an article talking about uh, it was an interview with Paul Romer, the economist who recently won a Nobel Prize. And he made a great point. The whole article is interesting, and I'll link to it, of course, at bobmurphyshow.com slash 115. But he made the point that a lot of people are complaining, well, how come 
you know, how, how come there hasn't, there weren't stockpiles, right? Why, why didn't some business think of this? You know, what, what, what kind of, you know, asleep at the wheel, short-sighted capitalism are we dealing with? And again, the answer is because they wouldn't be allowed to charge a higher price, right? So just, I'm not going to get into numbers here, again, because partly I, I don't know the relevant real-world facts, but if, if, if you thought you could buy toilet paper at whatever, $10 for a certain quantity in normal times, store it in a huge warehouse on the off chance that there's a crisis in which you're allowed to sell it for 15, well, then it might make sense to rent the warehouse space and to store tons of toilet paper. But if you're not allowed to sell it for more than you bought it for, why would anybody have the incentive to do that? What would be the point? You would just be carrying huge warehouses full of toilet paper year after year on the off chance there could be a disaster. Why would you do that? Okay, so yeah, the market economy works if it's allowed to. So let me put it to you this way. You can be upset at price gougers or you can be upset that private business didn't have adequate stockpiles of masks and hand sanitizer and toilet paper on the eve of this crisis. But you can't do both because it's your very attitude, your vilification of people who are, quote, price gouging or profiteering that meant it was in no, no firm's interest to have stockpiles of this stuff. All right. So I'm not telling you which one of those you should pick, but you can't do both. Last thing on this topic, again, let me give you some news you can use. Uh, what we have found is, at least in our area, the main stores can be out of the stuff, but if you go to like a dollar store, that's where we were finding when they would get toilet paper and Clorox wipes and that kind of stuff in, it would last longer there because people weren't, you know, a lot of people don't even shop there. Like everybody goes to Walmart or the big grocery stores. So, that's my little tip for you. Also, in terms of you minimizing the chance of catching this thing, you, you want to avoid big crowds. And so that's another reason that if you need to venture out into the dangerous world to get toilet paper, try, you know, the, the dollar store, you know, whatever it's called in your area. Check those places out. They might have it. Okay. So last segment here for this episode, let me just give you some tips that we're doing. So again, our our background is... Um, my wife absolutely cannot get this thing. And so, you know, she's been doing lots of research and talking with me and just steps we've adopted because it's not just that she can't get it. I can't get it because if I get it, I'm going to bring it home to her and I won't even know I'm sick. Right. So I have to be super careful too. So number one is the CDC's messaging on this was horrendous. And I think the World Health Organization also. Because what they were telling people, and I, to my knowledge, they're still telling them, is, oh, masks have, been, have not been shown to be effective in preventing transmission of this. Just do social distancing and wash your hands. So, yeah, sure, washing your hands and social distancing are good. But by saying masks aren't effective, that makes you think this isn't transmitted through the air. That, you know, the way you get it is somebody who's sick touches you or you touch them or they, you know cut themselves and you touch some of their blood and then you have someone to lick your finger. That's not, I mean, don't lick the blood of somebody who has this obviously, but my point is no, you can be, if you're in a closed room with somebody and you don't physically touch them and they're just talking to you and you're sharing the same air, you can get it, right? Cause there's droplets that come out or their mouth and nose and that you can absorb it into, into your system, you know, by breathing it in. Or I think it also can go through your, your eyes. Okay. So, just, just keep that in mind. So 
if, if you're someone who absolutely does not want to catch this thing, don't think that, oh, as long as I wear gloves and I'm super careful and I wash my hands, you know, if I go out into the world, I got to go shopping or something. I got gloves on. Then I get home and I really wash my hands before I have lunch. So I'm good, right? No, no, no. That's not enough. The, again, when, when they're with the messaging, when they're saying masks have not been shown to be effective, what they mean is if you just have on like a surgical mask, you could still catch it. That absolutely does not mean you might as well not put on a surgical mask because it's not going to do anything for you. No, of course it's going to help. And I think part of what was going on here is that the authorities wanted to reserve the very inadequate number of masks, particularly the N95 masks, for professional healthcare workers, the people on the front lines dealing with COVID-19 patients so that those healthcare workers didn't get it. And so they were concerned that if we tell the public, oh yeah, putting on a mask, that's certainly better than nothing. Well, then what's everyone going to do? The masks are going to be like toilet paper, right? So that's what was going on. And whether you think that was a good thing or not, I'm just telling you that don't misunderstand that messaging and make sure you realize that how you get this thing primarily is by breathing the air or sharing air with somebody who has it. And again, keep in mind, the person who has it might not be exhibiting symptoms yet. So you don't even know they're sick. This also has to do, by the way, with you know some of the speculation as to why is it that some Asian countries seem to have emerged relatively unscathed from this thing, whereas it's crushing you know Italy and now us, or we're on the cusp of being officially crushed. Uh, and, and that might they're speculating that maybe that's part of it that in certain Asian societies it's it's not weird to go around wearing masks, and also everybody has masks on hand. And so when this thing broke out, boom, everyone's walking around with masks and that greatly slowed the transmission of it. That might be, you know, when, when the dust settles and people go back and study these things, that might be the single biggest factor, you know, as opposed to the other stuff they did, you know, whether, you know, the stay-at-home orders and blah, blah, blah. If everyone can go out and be walking around, if everyone's wearing a mask, that's really going to help. Okay, so again, notice, if you want to blame the government for this and get mad, you're, you're allowed to do that. I'm not telling you not to, but I'm saying... Don't be mad that they're inventing some crisis out of whole cloth that doesn't exist. Be mad at them that the CDC from the get-go was telling Americans, don't don't bother wearing masks because that doesn't do anything. That's not right. Incidentally, I'll link to um, Scott Alexander. That's the guy, I think that's a pseudonym, who blogs at Slate Star Codex. It's a fantastic website or blog. Um, he has a whole post summarizing the academic literature on wearing masks. So as you can imagine, a trained healthcare professional who knows how to get one of those N95 masks on and get the seal right, that person's going to be better than Joe Blow who's wrapping a sock around his mouth. Okay. But the point is, since this stuff is in the air droplets and you breathe it in, having even just a scarf on is better than nothing. And again, that's why, remember that the, the New York City doc, or uh, nurse's blog post that I read you some excerpts from. That's why the healthcare workers in hospitals, when there was a shortage of masks, were being told, put a, put a garbage bag around your face. Okay. So if, if masks don't do anything, why are they wrapping garbage bags around their face? Right, just think that through. Why are we being told, oh yeah, don't worry. You don't need a mask reserved for the healthcare workers. Well, why is it helping them? Do, do healthcare workers have different lungs from regular people? No, obviously. Okay. So again, 
if you want to, out of altruistic reasons, say, you know what, I don't really need this thing. I'm, you know, if I catch it, I catch it. Let me not go get masks to reserve it for the people working in the hospital. Okay, fine. But I'm just saying in case you didn't realize you could catch it from breathing it in, I just want to clarify that. And I'm just harping on this, folks, because even talking with my friends and relatives as recently as five days ago, I'm realizing a lot of them still don't know how you catch this thing. And it's understandable if you were stupidly listening to the CDC or the World Health Organization. Okay, um, another thing we're doing real simple step to limit our forays in the outside world instead of going to the grocery store, just get a delivery service. So the one we happen to be using, I, I don't know if there are others, is instacart.com. That's been working well for us. So I-N-S-T-A-C-A-R-T.com. I'm sure there's other ones or store-specific ones. If you've got a store you like, they'll do it. Just do that. You know, online, you go through, you select the stuff, they go shop through, you're getting text updates, boom, they drive it to your house. And what we do is I don't interact with the driver. I stand far back as I put it on the ground. If it's non-perishable stuff, I just let it sit in the garage for at least a day. Whatever, you know, whatever coronavirus germs are on that thing, let them die off. And, and by the way, there's, if you want folks, I'll, I'll put a link to, um, you know, they, they've done experiments in the lab to see how long does COVID-19, you know, or the, how long does this particular coronavirus um, live on certain surfaces? You know, like does it last on cardboard versus plastic, that kind of stuff. So I'll go ahead and and, and link to that if you want. And if it's perishable, you know, like a gallon of milk that you can't just let sit in your garage for a day, especially as we get into the springtime here, I'll just take a wet wipe, you know, like a Clorox bleach wipe and, and wipe that thing down before I bring it in, into the house. All right. So real simple stuff. It's not, you know, a huge deal. It's actually kind of convenient. And, the, and the, the, the service charge isn't that big a deal, at least in our area. Okay. So that's something simple you can do. So you don't have to be going out in the store interacting with other people unnecessarily. Uh, another simple tip is mail, right? What I do now is I go out with the paper towel. I open the mailbox on the side with a paper towel. I grab the mail with a paper towel, close it without touching my skin to anything. Then I go into the garage and I have different piles set up. So I can plop the mail down in a pile and I know like how many days has it been sitting there. And particularly if it's bills or junk mail, I don't want to look at that. Let's let it sit there for a couple of days. Okay. And you can just do it. You can get a system going so that any, the point being anything you bring into the house, you either have directly disinfected if it's something, you know, perishable or it's been sitting in the garage for at least 24 hours to get a time for that stuff to die off. All right. And again, folks, I'm not saying I guarantee you if you left something in the garage 24 hours, it can't hurt you. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that's better than doing nothing. All right. And again, you can go do research. I'll put the links at bobmurphyshow.com slash 115 if you want to get more scientific about it. All right. So something like that. If you feel funny doing that, right? You you don't want your neighbor to see you using a a paper towel to open your mailbox and stuff, and you, you know, grabbing your mail, you don't want to look like a nut job. Okay, fine. So go out. When you open the mailbox, don't grab the handle with your bare hand. Use the, you know, grab the side of it where the mailman or woman isn't touching it. And then, you know, grab the stuff, close it, and then drop it off in your pile in the garage. And then just go make sure you go wash your hands before you forget, before you touch any other part of your body with that. And that, you know, that's pretty, pretty safe strategy too. All right. So just little things like that, you can just extrapolate and try to limit your outside contact. But getting the mail and getting groceries coming in are two obvious things that everyone's got to be doing 
over the next month or two, even if they have these official stay-at-home orders. Okay, so I will wrap it up there. Again, uh, I really hope this is a, a panic, and it turns out these numbers end up being way lower than what Trump said. I'm just trying to get people to see why this isn't merely a liberal plot to take down Trump. And again, why would Trump himself be, be advancing these numbers? Okay, so these, these things I'm talking about um, doesn't really hurt you to do many of them. I'm not asking you to change your way of life indefinitely. Over time, as more people get this, and most of them will recover, thank goodness, then they'll have immunity. And so that's fewer and fewer people in the community that will have it. And so over time, you know, your, your personal cost-benefit calculations, you know, once the, the ban is lifted and you're allowed to roam freely, you can decide, okay, you know what, I'm going to, this guy Murphy was telling me to get Instacart. I don't need to do that anymore. I'm going to the grocery store because at this point, the number of people who probably have it out there in my community is smaller and smaller. Good. That, that point will come and hopefully it's here sooner rather than later. But what I'm just saying is right now, this is what we're doing for sure because again, I can't bring it home to my wife. And for those of you who have someone vulnerable in your household, I would strongly encourage you to consider these sorts of steps. And it's just a temporary thing until we get a better handle on this. We get more testing, herd immunity develops and so on. Okay. Well, Stay safe, everybody, and I will talk to you later after we have the new baby. Stay safe, folks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.